Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. Isaiah 45 to 47. So we're well into the back half of the book of Isaiah. 66 chapters. We're in chapter 45 to 47. Like we looked at last week, the first half is about God's judgment. His telling the people of Judah and Israel where they stand, what they've been doing, how much he loves them, how much he's going to and has saved them, but how rebellious and sinful and wicked they've been and the judgment that's going to come. have a couple of chapters in the middle where we look at um, King Hezekiah and a few of the things that God did through him and then we're well into the back end now, which is in some ways far more uplifting because the first half is you have been wicked, judgment's coming. The back half is the judgment has, has, is both happening and has happened. So the, the promised judgment is to the people of Judah in particular, because the kingdom of Israel has already been taken out. It's the ten northern tribes, two southern t- tribes, the kingdom of Judah. They're still cracking. They're still alive, still surviving, surrounded by world powers. They've got uh, Egypt down um, to their southwest. They've got this massive empire, Syria, up to the northwest. They've got this um, kingdom of Babylon, which... Uh, has risen and fallen and risen and fallen, and it's just on the rise at the moment. So the, in the first half of Isaiah, Babylon's not even really a threat to the people of Judah, except that God is promising through the prophet Isaiah that Babylon will be the, his means or instrument of judgment upon the people of Judah. And so they might have been, they might have been reading or hearing Isaiah tell them God is going to judge you and he's going to use Babylon. And they might have looked over at Babylon and gone, right. Like we, <laughs> we're paying Assyria to look after us and Assyria could just squash Babylon. In fact, Assyria would just routinely send armies into different cities of Babylon and uh, just squash them. And they're like, and we also have a little bit of a deal with Egypt as well, who again have been world powers uh, at some, in some regard, for a thousand years. And so they might not have been too worried about Babylon. But as we, as we saw last week, Babylon indeed did rise to become a world power, crushed Assyria. So to the north uh, and east of Assyria were the Medes and this Persian empire who, uh, uh, sorry, the Medes um, and the Babylons, the Babylonians, who eventually came in and just wiped out the Assyrians, just complete, completely decimated them. Uh, and everybody else, the whole world is kind of freaking out. And Babylon uh, become the biggest world power at the time. So all of Mesopotamia, uh, even all around um, Judah, it's basically this whole, all of the um, ancient Near East is all Babylon all of a sudden. And the people of Judah all of a sudden have this fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah, the first half of Isaiah. It's happened. It's come about. This judgment that they, this reckoning, this purification, refinement that had been promised had happened. This is a very, very famous time in, uh, in the Jewish people. Uh, Jeremiah, he begins his prophetic work, not Isaiah, Jeremiah is a different guy, begins his prophetic work first in Jerusalem after the first wave of exiles have been taken out and into Babylon. So uh, first of all, King Nebuchadnezzar, 
who maybe have, uh, you may know of him if you grew up in Sunday school. Certainly, you would have heard of uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he was the guy who threw um, Rakshak and Benny into the furnace. And uh, he is he was one of the most, uh, I don't know, fearsome rulers of the day. His dad had been a pretty fearsome ruler. His son, Belshazzar, not so much. He'll feature in a little bit as well. Uh, but certainly King Nebuchadnezzar, man, uh, when, when the Babylonians first kind of rose to power, it's Neo-Babylon, so the second wave of Babylonians, uh, first rose to power and defeated the Assyrians, um, Egypt thought, well, now's our time. Uh, in fact, Egypt is down here for you. Now's our time. We can go up and we can actually take back some of these cities or come in and conquer these cities from Assyria. Uh, and, and they do that. They actually go in and they take some of those things. And Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar goes, wait a second. That's not right. Uh, these, you know, uh, it's time for me to show my power. And he goes in and routes them and chases them all the way down past Judah, all the way to the border of Egypt. So all of a sudden, Judah, just there was no fight. Nebuchadnezzar just rocked up to them. They'd been paying Jews to the king of Egypt at the time. Uh, comes up, knocks on the door and says, Hey, how you doing, uh, King uh, Jehoiakim? How you doing? You, you were paying Jews to this guy. Clearly, we're the bigger power. What do you reckon? We pay to us instead. And King Jehoiakim's like, Well, yeah, okay, no worries. Uh, we're just this little like, you know, blob on the map and you guys are the, the new world rulers. Go for it. And then just as he's going down, Nebuchadnezzar's going down into Egypt uh, to kind of get some retribution, he gets, he gets the word that his dad has died. And so first thing he has to do is go back to Babylon to establish his throne. Uh, it wasn't contested, but nevertheless, he had to go back. And because he'd been in all these uh, military campaigns, what he wanted to do was come back as this like conquering commander to show his people, yeah, I am not only the rightful king, I am a good king. And so he comes back by way of, Jer- of Jerusalem and takes with him the sons, in particular, of the nobility. And he takes them with him back to Babylon to establish his kingdom. And with him he takes Daniel. With him he takes Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. He's taking people like this back with him in this kind of first wave of, of the exile uh, as Judah and Jerusalem specifically start to lose its key up-and-coming leaders. King Nebuchadnezzar, his plan was to, tr- to take them into Babylon, train them as Babylonians, treat them really, really well, make them part of like the aristocracy over there, the ruling class, um, and then send them back after many years as um, locals, but who were Babylonian- Babylonianized locals. And so we've already started to see the first wave of exiles happening. Jeremiah is prophesying during this time. There's some um, people of Judah, some Jewish people in Babylon, some still left at the stage in Jerusalem in, in the time of these chapters. <clears throat> and people in Jerusalem started to think, well, clearly God loves us better than he loves those people in Babylon because they've been taken and we haven't. So we're the survivors and clearly they are the ones that were, are under God's judgment and not us. Whereas, as we'll see very soon... It was quite the opposite, where God chose to actually work through the exiles and he wasn't yet done cleansing the land. Jeremiah's one, he comes along and, and prophesies, uh, this is not going to be a short wait. 
This is not going to be well. We're just going to be over here for a couple of years and then we'll come back into the land because our God is so good and clearly uh, he, he wants to um, you know, help us and, and make our circumstances smooth. He says, no, no, no. This is you know, that very famous uh, verse in Jeremiah. He's speaking to these people in exile and says, uh, for I know the plans that I have for you, uh, says the Lord to, or says Yahweh to, to prosper you, not to harm you. He's saying, you're going to be in exile for 70 years. The land, the temple, needs a Sabbath from your corrupting evil. The land needs some time off. The temple uh, needs some downtime, and it's going to be 70 years. It's going to be a whole generational change. Now, people who were here before, they're not going to be the people who come back. There's going to be this refinement. It's the same refinement Jeremiah is talking about that Isaiah has been talking about for the first half of his book. It's the same refinement that he's talking about here. <clears throat> It's also the time of Ezekiel. So this, if you, again, if you grew up in Sunday school, probably didn't hear about Ezekiel in Sunday school, apart from maybe in a list of prophets. It's a pretty dark book. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thorough examination of God's people. If you think Isaiah is damning of God's people uh, in his prophecies, man, read Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, Ezekiel, in the same time, the same time where people have been carried away into exile, Jerusalem is... is um, essentially being worn down and then later just utterly destroyed under King Nebuchadnezzar. He destroys the temple, the focal place, the focal point of, of all of the Jewish uh, community and worship and culture and governance, uh, suddenly all, all gone under King Nebuchadnezzar. And Ezekiel is speaking to these people saying, God wanted you to be like his bride. He, he's been so faithful to you over and over and over and over again, uh, you're supposed to like represent me to the world so that when the world looked to you, the world would come to you not to conquer you, but the world would come to you to learn from you and to get joy from you and to benefit from you. That's why I made you. That's why I put you here. That's what you're doing here. But instead, you've made me look like an idiot to everybody, like a fool, like an unjust God because of how you are behaving so evilly. This is, what, this is how he's saying. And then uh, he goes on and says, uh, Ezekiel 36, he says, It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, and the nations will know that I am Yahweh. He's saying, we're doing this, we're, this whole thing we're doing uh, so that when you come back, you can be those representatives to the world that I always wanted you to be. He says, I haven't forgotten you. I haven't neglected you. I'm not abandoning you. I am bringing you back to the purpose for which I chose you. That's what he's saying. It's the time of Daniel. Very famous guy. Slept with some lions. Was not harmed. That's later. That's, that's not in the time that we're talking about today. Uh, but Daniel, he was one of those guys, young, as a young man, taken into captivity, taken into exile. He lived there for a very long time. So of the 70 years, uh, he might have been there for 40 or 50 of those years. So a very, very long time. Uh, that he lived there. Um, he is the one who interprets King Nebuchadnezzar's dreams and says, you know what, King Nebuchadnezzar, you've had these unsettling dreams. Nobody else knows what they say. Uh, and King Nebuchadnezzar says, I want you to interpret my dreams to so all of his mystics and sorcerers and, and counselors. says, I want you to interpret my dreams, but I'm not going to tell you what they are. You've got to tell me what my dreams are and then tell me what they mean. Nobody can do it, obviously, uh, but then when the king says, well, we're just going to kill everybody, uh, and that would include Daniel and his mates. Daniel says, well, I know, I'll do it. I'll do it. This is what it means. It means your kingdom's coming to an end. 
Babylon has risen to a world power, but the Persians are going to come in and they are going to uh, destroy your kingdom. is going to come to an end at the, at the hand of Persians. And so if you take... Um, Daniel would have known Isaiah, the prophecies of Isaiah very well, would have known about this guy called Cyrus who was to come, and Daniel comes along and prophesies that it's actually going to be Persia that's going to come in and destroy uh, you Babylonians. Um, perhaps they're putting two and two together at this stage. Um, during his life in, in Babylon, uh, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, uh, Abednego, none of them turn away from God. They're there for a long time. This Babylonianization of uh, the ruling class, these young nobles, um, works for others but doesn't really work for them. Sure, they, they become very learned, they study, they become very well read, but they never neglect the God, their God Yahweh, the God who had delivered them and the God who was going to deliver them again. <clears throat> uh, it is Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They're the ones thrown into the furnace all in this time. We're about to see. I know this is a huge intro. I know this intro sounds like it's the whole sermon. This is the intro. Uh, the sermon, like I said, is going to be very short because the intro is so, so huge. Uh, but we're getting some context. Um, they're the ones thrown into the furnace. It's made seven times hotter because they wouldn't bow down to a statue for King Nebuchadnezzar. They would only bow to their own God, to Yahweh. And so they make it seven times hotter. Even the guys chucking on the fuel, they fry, but these three guys don't. And Nebuchadnezzar looks in and he says, and there's a fourth with them. It looks like the son of a God. And of course, uh, it is. <laughs> we know. This is the time. It's a time when Daniel uh, speaks to Belshazzar, who um, succeeds Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar is having a big party, and he sees his hand appear, start writing on the wall, and obviously, like we all would, freaks out that this hand appears out of nowhere and writes just three words, common words, on the wall. And he wants to know, what does this mean? Uh, no doubt there would have been some serious amount of alcohol and maybe other things at that party. They may have wondered if they were seeing things. Uh, but his wife remembers there's this guy, old man Daniel, old man by this stage. Uh, he can interpret these kinds of things. And Daniel comes in and he, and he does. And he reads these three words, Mene, meaning God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, these are all uh, like denominations of money. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Very famous phrase even today. Been measured and found wanting. And then Perez, meaning your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. The Medes from up north, the Persians from the east. Daniel tells King Belshazzar that his kingdom's coming to an end. And that very night, the Persians come. And who is leading the Persians? Why this massive intro? The guy leading the Persians, king of Persia, who's got this deal with the, uh, with the Medes, is King Cyrus, who history tells us is Cyrus the Great. And Cyrus, we find right here, in fact, we, we met Cyrus first last week, and we see Cyrus again right at the very beginning of this passage this week. So this is where we're going to start today. I'm going to pray. We're going to get into the Word. And we're going to see what God would have for us. Father God, uh, we thank you for your word and for the knowledge that you have continually spoken of your goodness, of your justice, of your holiness, of your love and your plan for your people throughout history. We thank you that you still speak to us today through your scriptures, by Holy Spirit, 
And we need open hearts and minds to your word, to the work of your spirit in us today, that we would see and hear and know what it is that you would speak to us today. And we ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Okay, epic intro. Let's read some Bible. This is from Isaiah 45. We won't get through all three chapters, obviously. Just going to deal with a, a chunk from um, chapter 45 tonight because the rest really carries on from that. And, uh, and you know where we are. You know what we're talking about. Uh, the, the, uh, the people of Judah are in exile. They're awaiting their salvation. They're wondering when is it going to happen? What is going to happen? What is the deal? <clears throat> and they know a guy called Cyrus is coming. This is what it says. <coughs> Excuse me. Isaiah 45. Yahweh, the Lord, says to Cyrus, his anointed. Right in the very first verse, we see so much communicated to us. God himself, Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, the God of the Jewish people, uh, he is saying this not to one of his people, not to one of his kings, not to Jehoiakim from uh, back in the day, not to... Uh, any of his present people, but to somebody who does not belong to his people. Who? It's to Cyrus. Cyrus the Great, who would eventually come to uh, rule over the largest, most powerful empire that had ever existed to date, to that date. And what does it say about Cyrus? It says, Yahweh says this to Cyrus, he's anointed. He's anointed. Anointed means... Uh, it's sometimes translated servant, um, chosen. The word in Hebrew is Messiah. God's, God's chosen one. God's chosen appointed saviour for that time. This is who he's talking to. God is going to use Cyrus as his chosen saviour for his people in this time. <clears throat> Yahweh says this to Cyrus, his anointed, whose right hand I have grasped. Remember last week we were you here when we talked about God grasping with his right hand and he grasps us with our right hand because he is going to fight our battles. He is going to go and do the work. He is the, the purely, magnificently sovereign king over all of the universe and does whatever he wants to do. Uh, he is saying to Cyrus, in fact, what does the scripture say? I, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations to before him and to psalm kings to open doors before him, and even city gates will not be shut. I will go before you and level the uneven places. I will shatter the bronze doors and cut the iron bars in two. I will give you the treasures of darkness and riches from the secret places so that you may know that I am Yahweh. So he's demonstrating what holding Cyrus's right hand looks like. What does it look like for God to do the work? For God to say, like, I've, I've got you, buddy. King Cyrus, like the great, he was known as, like the great ruler, saying, it's okay, little buddy, this is what I'm going to do. All those big doors you can't knock down, I'm going to open them. All the big um, barriers that seem insurmountable, I'm going to take care of them. All the undulating land that's going to tax your armies, I'm going to smooth it all out. I'm just going to take care of all of it. I've chosen you to do something, Cyrus, and I'm going to make your path really straight, so that you would know that I'm God. 
so that you, King Cyrus, in your, in your little M majesty, uh, would know that everything you have was gifted to you from me. That's what, I'm, that's what he's saying. I am the God of Israel who calls you by name. He's called him, he's called him by his name from a few generations beforehand in, this, in the book of Isaiah. We just saw this in the last couple of chapters. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen one, I give a name to you, though you do not know me. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. There is no God but me. Persians had other gods. Babylonians had other gods. Medes had other gods. Assyrians had other gods. The Egyptians had other gods. Everybody had other gods. Scythians way up north, they had other gods. And he's saying, you're about to conquer all those fools. Uh, you need to know I, I am God. I'm the God. I'm not a regional God. I'm not just a God. It's a little pocket in Judah. These little like scared folks who pay whoever happens to be the world power at the time so they don't get trampled. Uh, I am their God, but I am also the God, is what he's saying. I am Yahweh, again he says, and there is no other. There is no God but me. I'll strengthen you, though you do not know me, so that all may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is no one but me. I am Yahweh and there is no other. So he's saying, I'm going to do all these things so that you would know that I am God. And then when you plow through everyone and do my bidding, everyone will know that I am God. That's what he's saying. There's no other. There's no other God. You think there are other gods. There are no other gods. He goes on. I form light and create darkness. I make success and create disaster. I am Yahweh who does all these things. Heaven sprinkle from above and let the skies shower righteousness. Let the earth open up so that salvation will sprout and righteousness will spring up with it. I, Yahweh, have created it. Woe to the one who argues with his maker, one clay pot among many. Does clay say to the one forming it, what are you making? Or does your work say he has no hands? Woe to the one who says to his father, what are you fathering? Or to his mother, what are you giving birth to? This is what Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel and its maker says. <clears throat> Excuse me. Ask me what is to happen to my sons and instruct me about the work of my hands. So he's kind of rhetorically challenging them, sarcastically even, saying, you know, are you going you gonna to speak back to God? Like, are you going to speak back to me? I'm about to hand you this big victory. I made the earth and created humans on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded everything in them. I've stirred him up in righteousness and I will level all roads for him. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, not for a price or a bribe, says Yahweh of armies. So again, like we looked at last week when it says, you know, the Lord of hosts or Yahweh of armies, we often think of like heavenly hosts or heavenly armies. But what he's saying is all the armies are God's armies, all of them. All of the like global like machinations and political uh, maneuvering and all that kind of stuff, God is actually the boss of all of that. And he, uh, he allows or makes happen everything that happens. So he's saying to Cyrus, through his prophet Isaiah, this is what I'm going to do. This is what you're going to do. And there's actually, I don't know if this happened, uh, but there's legend from Josephus. Uh, who was a first century historian. Um, we, we know a lot about um, the ancient Near East because of Josephus, very famous uh, historian. And what he said was, 
in the time of Cyrus, the people of God actually took Isaiah's scroll to Cyrus and said, hey, uh, mate, see, this was written 130 years ago, mentioning your name and that you're going to be the one who, even though Babylon was going to come and conquer us like they did, that you were going to come in and you were going to set us free from our exile because God has chosen you to do so. That's not in the Bible. That's in Josephus. Uh, and whether or not that happened here, God is addressing Cyrus. He's talking to Cyrus. So Cyrus, this is what's going to happen. Uh, in fact, there is a decree from Cyrus um, from archaeology uh, called the uh, Cyrus Cylinder, Cylinder of Cyrus, which you can go and see. Uh, I think it's in Britain. And you can go and see this thing. And it's written in cuneiform, in like a, a, um, an ancient language, saying this declaration from Cyrus that anybody in the empire of um, uh, the Persian Empire, anyone in Cyrus's kingdom, can go back. If you were exiled or you were um, taken out of your land and you were um, prevented from worshipping your own gods, you can now go back. If it's in my kingdom, you can go back to your own land and you can start worshipping your own gods in your own ways. Like uh, really amazing for its time that Cyrus would do this. Chapter 46 uh, says this as well for, of Cyrus. I call a bird of prey from the east, a man for my purposes from a far country. Yes, I've spoken, so I will also bring it about. I've planned it, I will also do it. Listen to me, you hard-hearted, far removed from justice. I am bringing my justice near. It's not far away, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion, my splendor in Israel. So speaking to Cyrus, and he sounds so tender. He's like, Cyrus, I've anointed you, I've appointed you. I'm laying the paths uh, straight before you. You're going to have this great victory. And then he's talking to his own people and saying, uh, what does he call them? Uh, you hard-hearted, who removed justice. My people. <laughs> uh, I'm still bringing in the bird from the east. I'm still going to do it. I'm going to save you. It's going to happen. God both promises salvation and answers these people in exile who had been questioning him. They'd been in exile for seven years. In fact, it was exactly seven years from the destruction of the temple to the um, rebuilding, or at least the first rebuilding of the temple. Kind of lay stagnant for a couple of years. Then another prophet comes along and says, you guys are all building your own nice homes, yet God's house is sitting there still, only with the foundation laid. Like, come on, come on, guys. But still 70 years. So we see this, these prophecies of Scripture coming true. Like, we're in this amazingly privileged time uh, now, now that we have this like whole canon of Scripture, we can look back over God's promises and fulfilment, promises and fulfilment, promises and God coming through every single time, doing exactly what he says he's going to do. And the prophets not being listened to, but continually telling the truth. Imagine the first readers of this prophecy, or hearers of Isaiah. Isaiah saying, uh, you are going to be set free from Babylon. You're exiled in Babylon. You're going to be set free from exile in Babylon when Cyrus from Persia comes about. And here they are, like 130 years before any of this happens. And thinking, Babylon? Persia? Like, we're doing great. We've got, like, the, the great Assyria uh, looking after us. Uh, we, we're just fine over here. Imagine being Cyrus, uh, or imagine being in exile, sorry, and hearing that the next over kingdom has a new king called Cyrus. 
and you remember, wait a second, I'm pretty sure Isaiah said that from the east, this bird of prey, God's anointed, would come in, whose name was Cyrus, and free us from exile. Like, what kind of hope would well up in your heart being in exile at that time? And here we have, even before all of that time, God prophetically, uh, through Isaiah, prophetically answering all of those people's worries and woes and questions, going, God, what are you doing? I hear these promises that you're telling us, but life is still difficult. We're still in this uh, exilic state. We still can't go back and, and live how we want, where we're supposed to be and worship how we're supposed to worship. We can't do these things. Cyrus, uh, like has in, in the abstract, this word Cyrus, has come to mean, in the church at least, uh, some outsider, some non-Christian person who doesn't know God, who God still uses for his uh, amazing purposes somehow, whether it be uh, by donating a large amount of money or giving um, protection or some political kind of access. I saw on YouTube this week, researching for this uh, sermon, a lot, like many, more than one, crazies saying uh, of um, President Trump in America that he is the modern-day Cyrus. I'm thinking, I don't think that's true. Happy to be corrected. Give it 130 years. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. So how do, we, how do we respond to these chapters? What does it mean? Why would God highlight Cyrus? I mean, he's highlighting himself, actually. <laughs> this, is what, this is what God's doing. He's saying, well, I am Yahweh, there is no other. There's no one. There's no one next to me, no one beside me, no one like me, can't compare me to anybody. I'm God and there is no other. And I am choosing this guy, the one you would not expect. The, the thing that, like, you might expect me to pick a Daniel to rise up and like victoriously lead people back out of exile uh, in some like military battle or another angel of the Lord to go out and slay 180,000 uh, enemy combatants or something like that. He says, no, no, I'm doing it in a way that you don't expect. I'm choosing this other guy. How do we then respond uh, to these kind of chapters? Uh, first, we realize uh, that God is God. Again, we think this is about Cyrus, but it's about God. He's saying, you know, I'm going to turn away that you don't expect. It's going to appear like Cyrus is really great. And I mean, from history, Cyrus, it appears, was a really excellent ruler. Like a really, really good guy. The kind of ruler you would hope to see in Judah. Not like a whole like, line of terrible kings and rulers uh, that we see who are representing Yahweh. We see Cyrus himself who doesn't know God, uh, doing some really good things. But it's really all about God himself. He says, I am the one doing it. I have your right hand. Uh, you, will, you will claim victory, but no, this victory is my victory. Know that I have done all of the work. And why am I doing this? For my own glory. Why am I doing this? So that you would know that I am God. Why, why am I doing this? So that everybody would know that I am God. And so perhaps you find yourself, if you're trying to identify with somebody in this, in this time, maybe you find yourself uh, like God's people in exile, looking back at the people in Jerusalem originally, uh, thinking, man, those guys have got it so much better than me. 
How come we're both God's people, right? Uh, How come my life is so tough when their life looks so good? How come I'm going through constant struggle after struggle after struggle and they just got another promotion? They just got a, a, a new car. They just got a new whatever. How come my relationships seem to be so hard all the time? How come these guys over here, how come they seem to be doing it so easily? It just doesn't seem fair. Maybe you're more like the ones in Jerusalem looking down at the people uh, in exile, not knowing, of course, that the trouble's coming for you as well, as it invariably does. You might be going, uh, looking down on them with some sort of theological or moral superiority. Well, if you'd just been better, if you just made better decisions, uh, if you just prayed harder or saved up more money or said better things, perhaps you're feeling more like those in exile wondering if God has forgotten you. Are you crying out but all you're hearing is silence? He's essentially promised 70 years of rest, of Sabbath. Uh, he hasn't abandoned his people. He's still right there. He's still speaking through his prophets um, all the time. But his people aren't listening to Yahweh. They're just uh, listening, I guess, to their experience. Uh, they're trusting in what they can see and touch uh, and know and not in the God of the universe. Maybe, maybe that's more like you. Maybe you're the one who is really wondering, why would God do it like this? Like, Why take us out of the land uh, for 70 years so that everybody dies? Um, why would you do it so that people, people die in Jerusalem when Jerusalem is sacked? People are, are dying over here and there's more battles coming over this way. And why would you do it like this, God? Uh, don't you realize it would have been so much easier in my life if you had just done this, this, and this according to my plan? Why would you do it like this? doesn't make sense. Do we really have to do this? Here's the lesson. Here's the big idea. And I really do believe there's, there's one big idea from these three chapters. And this is it. He is God, whether you're, I mean, no matter which of those people you might identify with or some others, uh, he's God and he hasn't forgotten you. He's working out his plan. I find it amazing. Um, one of the things that really strikes me about all of the prophets around this time, like take Nahum, for example, uh, he said, he's prophesying about the Assyrians, the end of the Assyrian Empire. And he prophesies, and he says, Assyria, you think you're so great, your pride is going to end when you end. Your end is coming. And so here's his prophecy, the end of Assyria. And so if you heard that prophecy, you might be thinking, if you're one of God's people under the thumb of Assyria, you might be thinking, this is awesome. The Assyrians are going to be taken care of. This is great. 30 years later, the Assyrian Empire is defeated by the Babylonians, Babylonians and, the, uh, and the Medianites. In that 30 years, don't you reckon every subsequent year they would have been looking back to Nam going, you didn't know what you were talking about, man. Like, what are you, what are you doing? Uh, one of the, like the key test of whether you were an actual prophet of God or not in the Old Testament was, does your prophecy come true? Prophecy didn't come true, false prophet, death. And so these people would have been looking again every subsequent year. And for you, maybe, you might be thinking, man, how long is this thing going to keep going on? I keep praying for God to intervene. keep praying for God to 
step into my life and to do something, God has clearly forgotten me or forgotten us. And the word from Isaiah 45 is he hasn't forgotten you. He is working out his plan. He has people in place you don't even know about. People who aren't, you wouldn't even normally look to. He has his people and he's bringing about his perfect will. That's, that's the key. That's our takeaway. And we can have great confidence in this um, because we see him do it over and over and over again. Uh, these words were written 2,700 years ago, and, but we can see back <coughs> over those 2,700 years, Cyrus was a kind of a saviour. He was a kind of a messiah, but one that would ultimately point to the messiah, the saviour, the anointed one who would free God's chosen ones. This is a great foreshadowing. It is a great victory in its own right, but it's also a great foreshadowing of the Messiah was to come. Cyrus was a kind of a saviour. Jeremiah told God's people that God was working on his plan even when it didn't feel like it. Uh, man, we need to hear that message maybe daily. It doesn't feel like it. In fact, things seem to be getting worse. Praying for them to get better seem to be getting worse. God is at work. You can have great confidence that God is at work. Ezekiel, same time, spoke about God showing the world his glory through his people. God himself steps into the world to show his glory. God himself comes. Ezekiel's great charge against the Jewish people was that they'd been unfaithful to God. He was, he was like their husband and they'd been unfaithful to him. Uh, but one day we know God himself would come and lay down his life for his bride. God is taking care of business. God is working on behalf of his chosen ones. And you, if you are in Christ, you are his chosen ones. You are his people. He is. Man, we haven't even got to the New Testament yet to, to see over and over and over and over again how God promises he's working out uh, thing, all things out for your good. He is not just in your corner, not just encouraging you, not just clapping you along from the sidelines. He is the one who's taken your right hand, who is clearing the path before you, not making your life easier, but he is working and willing in you for your holiness and for your joy. That's what he's doing. He is laying down every barrier to his love. There's no more separation from God's love. Some more separation from God's will. Some more barriers to intimacy with God anymore because of what he's done for us. This is the foreshadowing we see uh, back here 2,600 years ago now. You're not forgotten. God's never late, doesn't tarry, never misses his opportunity. Those kinds of things are human traits. We are late. We don't know what's going on. We miss opportunities. God doesn't, does not do that. He, doesn't, he never does that. This is God who says in Isaiah 46, uh, Bell crouches, Nebo cowers. These are some of the false gods of the time, uh, like Belshazzar, that's where his name comes from, Bell, uh, and Nabopolazar, he's Nebuchadnezzar's dad. There's that Nabo in there and the Bell. These are the name for the idols of the time. And God is saying to them, Bell crouches, Nebo cowers, um, idols depicting them are consigned to beasts and cattle. The images you carry are loaded as a burden for the weary animal. The gods cower, they crouch together. They're not able to rescue the burden, but they themselves go into captivity. 
He's saying, you know all your idols. This is what we looked at last week as well. Sometimes you have to like nail them to the ground so they don't fall over. He's saying, you've got to carry around your own idols. Your idols are burdensome for you because they can't do anything. They're not really gods. You've got to carry their own burden. He says, listen to me. All the remnant of the house of Israel, house of Jacob, who have been sustained from the womb. He's saying, I have always carried you. I've always sustained you. I'll always be there for you. Carried along since birth, he says, I will be the same until your old age and I will bear you up when you turn grey. I've made you and I will carry you. I will bear and rescue you. And he goes and says, remember this and be brave. Take it to heart, you transgressors. Remember what happened long ago. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and no one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place and I will do all my will. It's so amazing how these things written to a particular people so many years ago speak so just loudly to us today that God is saying, remember how I've come through every single time, how I always deliver, how I always say, I always do what I say I'm going to do, how though it might take a generation, I'm faithful, I'm never late, I never miss an opportunity, I'm always, always there for you. I was there for you in your womb, I carried you from childhood, and I'll be there carrying you when you're old and grey. The other idols you have to carry, the other things you would look to, to give you purpose or meaning, to anchor your hope to, to look to for salvation, they're a burden to you. He says, but I'm not, only, not only am I not a burden, I will carry you. What a wonderful promise. I live in the promise. Are you reminding yourself of the promise? That even in like, really difficult circumstances in life, that might last a very long time, that God is still grasping your right hand with his. And he loves you, he's for you. Uh, before the foundation of the world, he chose you. Before you could do anything to earn his love or his favour, favour, he already chose you. He already like looked down through the, like the, the tunnel of time or however time works and he went, you're mine. I'm going to love you. All, all the way through to the end. These are the things we need to be reminding ourselves on. This is God's love towards you. Have you made a burden out of your relationship with God? Do you find your relationship with God more like that relationship with idols? So you, you kind of feel like you're dragging God along all the time. You have to make excuses for why God hasn't done the things that you think he should have done uh, or he's not working according to your plan um, or... Are you resting in the knowledge that he does whatever he wants to do and what he wants to do is to save you, is to uh, love you and is to work in you for your holiness and for your joy? Man, I've got a lot more to say, but I'm going to finish there. Let's pray together. Father God, uh, we thank you so much again that you carry us we thank you that uh, you don't leave us, you don't forsake us, you don't forget us, you don't neglect us. And yet we have felt all of these things because we've forgotten who you are. 
we have felt neglected when you don't work according to our plan or our timeline. We've felt forgotten uh, when things haven't gone the way that we would hope they should have gone or uh, when we're left in a time of pain or um, hurt or confusion or sickness for uh, a long period of time. But we know, we know that you are using everything and sending all things for our good, for our holiness and for our joy. And so we thank you. Thank you that you have watched over us. You chose us before we were born. You've carried us since we were born and that you will carry us still all the way through into the new heaven and new earth. You're such a wonderful God. Such an amazing God. Uh, we, we love, we thank you, we love that we get to come together and just recount your, your goodness to your people over time uh, out of scripture. Um, may our hearts and minds and conversations be full of those times that you have come through for us. That we'd remind ourselves and remind each other of uh, your goodness and your greatness to us. Help us to this end for your name's sake because you are God and there is no one like you. Uh, there's no one beside you. There is no other. And we praise you tonight in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.